0: DJ, tens of thousands on my right, thousands by my side. War between good and evil, watching our fists collide. Battle for our freedom now. To the streets we ride, flags waving all around, pages full of pride. This is where we make a stand. No more give or take.
1: They wanna use violence on Americans. We want freedom. We want peace. We want freedom. We want peace. We want freedom. We want peace. Defend the Constitution. Many warriors Casting down
0: any mongers who have bucked cow. Enough with tyranny. We come to take our country back for all citizens, white, red, brown, or black. Return it to a form of glory. Fix the bloody crack on the crown. Fetch it down. It's going down. my mama told me yeah she warned me that this day would come i'm like my father go to combat with the blazing guns i survived that then i came back to the place i'm from to face off all these haters and the battle in the place i love you can't break me down
1: i'm indivisible you still see my raps if i was invisible that pepper spray tastes like chicken I am Joseph Thomas, also known as Pi Anon. I'm a January 6th defendant because I was at the Capitol. But I'm facing several years in prison, even though I did not go into the building, I did not attack anyone, I did not destroy anything, but I did videotape what actually happened and publicized all of my videos. What is happening in our nation is an absolute tragedy in my opinion. Men and women being overcharged, over-sentenced, thrown into solitary confinement for months on end without trial, being considered guilty without going to trial, no convictions, yet they still sit in prisons across the United States on pre-trial detention for years. Again, no trial. We try to highlight this tragedy in our justice system, bring to the forefront the things that they go through, how the process needs to be and can be changed for the better. True justice under the law, fair and blind, to stand up for American values, to protect American rights, Our constitution, the bill of rights, declaration of independence, our founding documents, state, exactly how we the people have the power to fix what we see as problems or injustices in this nation. And A lot of men and women have banded together to help, to bring awareness, to stand up for those that need our help because they have no voice, to be a voice for the voiceless, to get Americans like yourself involved in fixing this nation, one brick at a time. One particular group sits outside the jail in DC every single night and have been for the last several months, singing, praying, and again, bringing awareness to what is going on inside that facility to the men and women that have not been to trial. They open their day every day with a prayer, a group prayer, and I uh, had the honor of being asked to do the opening prayer a while back. So, enjoy.
0: Hi, Anon will be the one doing the opening prayer. And um, he's the one, for those of you who might not know, he started um, Sing for Freedom, hashtag Sing for Freedom. He records himself singing the national anthem at 9 o'clock every night in solidarity with the guys in here, much like what we do here. So, um, I, really uh, the honor of, uh, I really appreciate the honor of being
2: able
0: to do this. Um, I wish I could be down there with you all, but under with you in spirit and heart. Um, if everybody could, uh, please bow your heads in a moment of prayer with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this chance to gather together as humble servants to your word and to your will. Ever thankful that you are our God. To you, we give all honor and all glory. Father, we wish to thank you for the safe travels of these families and friends that have been able to make it down here to this vigil. We thank you for the ability to gather. We thank you for the amazing community and families that have been created and joined through the friendships of one unified heart and one unified voice to stand for you, for freedom, and for truth. Father, we notice your hand at work here. We see the things that you have done for us and through us to guide us and aid us in your way. We thank you for the chance to stand in unity with those around us in this fight for freedom. Father, this is a time that we need you most. But as beacons of your light, we would like to thank you for the chance to show your glory to others. There is no doubt that this has been a time of struggle and loss. But Father, we know that our suffering during this time is for gain in your kingdom. This is a fight for freedom and a struggle for truth. You go before us and you fight for us in this battle. Father, we know that you have already won and that you ask that we only stand. And this we will do tonight as one in you. Holy Spirit, please, light, lead us into the truth of your guidance. This world around us is steeped in darkness. Lord, help us to realize it is a way to bring your majesty and your glory to its fruition. Our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us because of you. Heavenly Father, we lay a pleading and imploring at your feet that you please look after those that are in our hearts and our minds unjustly persecuted and prosecuted unjustly discriminated against for standing please forgive us our shortcomings and restore our nation that we may once again be one nation unified under you with liberty and justice for all mankind help us to hold on to the hope that we will once again be with them. We put our trust in you, Lord. We know the plans that you have for us are for our good. Our hearts might ache, but we praise you and trust you. Help us to be strong in you, Lord. Help us to recognize your power and your might. Please put peace into our hearts as only you can give. We know that you are not a God of fear, father you are our fortress and our deliverer we are on guard for the enemy wishes to attack us from all sides help us to take on the shield of faith for you are our guard and our god help us to cling to your faithfulness for we will stand true also father we ask that you help soften the hearts of those that we stand against to bring them closer to you and to your truth help to show you are your glory to them. That may the light of your will and your might and your divinity help bring those in darkness into the light of your love. They may mock you, but it's only because they do not know you, Lord. This time we understand is temporal. We look forward to the time of eternity with you from our salvation through Christ Jesus. In whose name we pray, Amen.
1: I had a chance to speak with a January 6th defendant by the name of Sean Witzman. He um, has been through the entire process and just finished his sentencing, which uh, many of us listen to through Court Listener. And I reached out to him and had a chance to to speak with him. Um, I've actually known him for a while and think that his story is extremely compelling, especially his perspective on what actually was going on at the Capitol that many might not see. He has an interesting expertise and has made a business out of it. And I'm not talking about plumbing which you will see. So take this moment to truly listen to what he says, because this is his story. And it has some interesting facts that I think you might benefit from understanding about what happened at the Capitol, because this is not what you're going to hear on the mainstream, stream propaganda media being shoved down our throats on a daily basis. okay i have sean witzman here he has been a warrior for truth and been out front loud and outspoken about january 6th and i'm so honored to have a chance to speak with you brother and uh, give you a chance to share your story and uh, have your voice reach out to the american people uh, first and foremost, though, uh, how have you been doing?
3: Well, you know, it's it's one day at a time. Um, you know, honestly, it's like trying to adjust right after the sentencing and then meeting with the, with probation and the U.S. Marshals and trying to get everything set up, you know, and kind of realizing just how much they intend to change my life. Uh, that's been the biggest challenge at this point. Um So I'm just trying to take it one day at a time. And I recognize that there's a lot of other people who have it a lot worse than me. So I've got to keep that in mind all the time. That's that's very commendable. And your story has been extremely
1: compelling. Um, I've been following it for quite some time. Uh, But before we get into the whole January 6th thing, um, I know you're a a journalist. Um, How did that come about? Like, Who is Sean Wittsman?
3: Series of uh, poor life decisions, maybe. <laughs> um, you know, for years I was, I had been in plumbing. It's kind of an interesting thing because uh, I went into plumbing because I had gotten my then girlfriend pregnant. Uh, I was going to school and actually studying sociology and other interesting subjects, but life necessitated that I get a job and start paying bills. So that's what I did. So I dropped out of college and went into plumbing, you know, which, you know, my father had taught me that trade. And, you know, of course, I I became quite successful at that, went on to become a general manager of another company. Uh, That would have been in 2016 I actually went down to Dallas uh, because we were looking at starting a major operation down there the company I was working with they were doing anywhere from three to four thousand homes per month in the Denver area and so we were looking to start a similar operation in Dallas so I went down there and, and was speaking with subcontractors and kind of wild in the entire story was that when Donald Trump got elected it screwed up the business plan because for those that don't know, in new housing, new construction, most of the subcontract labor is Mexican. And so it set up this weird situation when Trump got elected that a lot of the plumbers in Dallas actually left because Dallas wasn't a sanctuary city. And so they, were, they headed to Denver, which kind of had the effect of potentially raising the cost of labor in Dallas and driving the cost of labor down in Denver. And so it just kind of all fell apart. Right after the election and then basically I was without a job I shut down the branch that I was running in Durango Colorado and went and just started my own business after that and that and that went all right um, you know I was I was successful at that obviously I was very good at what I did um, and and it had gotten to a point in 2018 where I had more free time I was doing a lot of paper pushing just running contracts and things. And so I kind of, you know, my mind started to wander and maybe I had my midlife crisis a little bit, but I started a satire publication called Farmington Tribune in which I lampoon various uh, media organizations, politicians, and anybody else who I decided to set my sights on. Um, that, That became very successful. Had, you know, many satirical posts hit millions of views and There were a lot of laughs to be had. Um, So over the course of the next year, that continued to grow. One of the running jokes Um, associated with that was when people would comment this has been independently verified by the armenian council for truth and journalism and so that was something that i had based off of growing up with my dad he would try to open a bag of plumbing parts or whatever and he wouldn't be able to get into it and he would say it was hermetically sealed by the armenian medical society so it was kind of a play off of that which is an old fire sign theater joke for anybody who knows that or they can look it up and learn more about that but so in 2019 um, after all this had gone on i kind of had bigger plans and so i started my media company officially which was tribune media international llc uh put a logo on it which there was always kind of a play on words there i mean obviously tribune spoke to some of the issues that i dug into even through satire because people had sent me so much just crazy information um knowing that i would get the information out somehow some way or somehow Uh, so it was like tmi i was playing off of that the logo was actually a wolf crying over mount Ararat. kind of interesting how all this works out but so as the first venture of the new media company i decided that i would actually go to armenia and the idea was to look into the idea of filming a uh, semi-satirical sort of documentary, like a reverse Borat style, highlighting American ignorance. And it used to be up on YouTube. The little bit that I was able to put together out of that, although it never really became what I had envisioned. Um, but you know, of course, that channel's now been taken down. Um, so yeah, that was that was the reason I went to Armenia. That was the that was kind of the first big step, and it was. It was kind of crazy there because it it really ended up... I had, you know, a spiritual experience, so to speak, or a sort of awakening or a vision, which is really hard to describe in English, but uh, or any language for that matter. But I I think it kind of set my life on a different path, to be sure.
1: Can you give us sort of a a glimpse as to what that vision uh, directed you towards or or how it affected you?
3: Well, you you know, it was was kind of wild because... uh, I was actually standing on the slopes of a mountain and it was on Halloween of 2019 actually and I looked off into the West and it was almost like I it was like getting a download like a massive download um, into my soul and it's like I saw the end of the world things didn't make sense or it was like like sort of a waking dream um, and then I would see it actually happen can't be explained so it's it's just you know you can say oh well things are coincidental or whatever but it's it's deeper than that. Uh, there's been you know a variety of experiences that have confirmed that over the past few years. This gets into some pretty esoteric territory, but um, yeah, it's it's been interesting because you know prior to that I was a pretty staunch atheist. I was I was raised Christian, but um, you know through a series of you know logical arguments you know i had kind of come to the conclusion that there wasn't a god um and so that was kind of the end of that where i couldn't deny the existence of god anymore that, you know it's it's very difficult to describe but it was it was very life changing and then even to the point where you know different ideas that we had joked about you know I and you know my buddy Vladimir went with me, and we met up with his brother Janya, uh, and then my friend Brock Willett was there with me as well. And we had joked about you know like scripting out this movie that we wanted to make, but it was bizarre to the point where everything that happened in Armenia really, really mirrored that. You know, all the way up to the point where you know there was an art, there was an altercation with some, some gangsters over there. It got weird, wasn't sure I would get out of the country, you know, I came face to face with kind of the realities of of slavery and human trafficking, which I kind of keep a lot of those details close to the chest just to keep other people safe. Yeah, it was kind of like a rude awakening uh, to the world we live in And, and being shocked into understanding that I wasn't going to be able to continue to carry on life the way I always had. An experience like that would truly be life altering. Um, You know,
1: a lot of folks have a uh, rainbows and bunny rabbits view of the world and then they come across the hard realization that uh, life can get pretty messy and that there are some very sick and uh, disturbing people and experiences out there that that no one ever speaks about or want to believe even exist.
3: That was a lot of it. Even when I was running the satire page, and people would send me just these horrible stories, you know, about corruption in New Mexico, where I was from. Um, and we addressed a lot of those. We found ways to really expose people. You know, we've we did a lot of things behind the scenes, you know, through our satire that that uh, I think accomplished some good to that effect. But it wasn't it wasn't really until then that I saw kind of the way things worked in the entire world. And I think that that was. Uh, absolutely by divine providence to the point where even you go back to the idea of the joke of things being independently verified by the Armenian Council and I go to Armenia to seek out the original founding of the Armenian Council for Truth and Journalism which you know I had written like a whole mythology for that where Noah got off of the ark and you know after making his sacrifice that was when he founded it you know so there was it was just bizarre to the point where it's like I go over there to do that and in essence that's really what happened was that I found that you know on a, a conceptual level and and it's it's like after that you know you, you kind of you're like okay well what does this mean and and you start trying to sort it out and of course you know my friends they didn't really get where I was coming from either and and you just try to work through that so it's like I get back the other thing that was going on right then was that was when Epstein uh, that all broke, and you know, you obviously had coronavirus uh, being released at the Wuhan you know, War Games. It was so. It's like you have all of these things going on in the world that we're still dealing with now, and they all started at that same time. You know, kind of in that same place. It's it's very bizarre to me still. Um, and so, like I say, I came back to the United States, and I spent you know about a month. In the United States and then took off again and actually went to the United Kingdom uh, for kind of the second iteration of maybe what I was trying to do with that and uh, I got into Heathrow Airport and they shut down Heathrow Airport immediately after I got there, which here's another, here's another end of it, which is that, you know, I was deathly ill for two weeks before that trip. And I didn't even know if I was going to be able to get on the plane. And literally the day before the flight took off out of Denver, Colorado to London, you know, I, I started feeling a little bit better, you know, but I I was still symptomatic. Um, and it was funny, you know, because again, they shut it down right there. And then, you know, I proceeded to travel around the UK you know, doing filming, making jokes. You know, seeing a lot of friends over there, and kind of working more on that concept. And then, you know, I get back to the United States, and of course, then they shut the whole world down—coronavirus through the United Kingdom—and it it kind of followed my path. And so we always joked and said that that uh, we were patient zero in the United Kingdom. But you know, I don't, it's it's just wild. So we get back from the United Kingdom, and then of course. They shut everything down, and it's like, okay, well, what are you going to do now? Because my next trip was actually supposed to be Donbass in Ukraine. I wanted to head into eastern Ukraine, see what was going on with the conflict with Russia as it existed then. And so that all got kind of pushed to the side. And so we started a podcast and did an episode pretty much every night uh, throughout 2020 Um, And it was called the Armenian Council for Truth and Journalism. It was out on, you know, we did it on multiple platforms. At the same time, uh, I was helping develop other podcasts as well. There was probably four or five of them. Um, And then when the riots and the protests started in summer 2020, it was just like this kind of natural thing to end up covering that. One of the publications I had was Denver Tribune, and so, you know, she'll never admit it now. But the publisher of a very liberal magazine there, Yellow Sea Magazine, she actually actually worked with me to to make sure that you know our live stream journalists that we had covering the the protests and riots in Denver. You know, had credentials, and so she worked with me on that. His name was Dylan Beresford. He actually went on to cover events in Portland, and so most of my nights during the summer were spent uh, working with the various people that I had streaming or reporting to me from around the country, and 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 then pushing that out. You know, so I would usually start work, you know, right around dark and work all night, and and then you know get a little bit of sleep. So that was. That was how I spent the entire summer was covering those protests and riots. So I was I was very intimately involved in that. And it's this, you know, and I talked about this a little bit, and I think I even told the judge that in my case, where it was like, you know, I told my friends on the right, I said I didn't like the way everybody was just scoffing at the you know, the excessive enforcement when it came to peaceful protests, because I saw a lot of it, especially in Denver. For those that aren't aware, the the BLM protests in Denver were very very peaceful. There was not an excess of violence there at all, um, and it was a nightly thing. And the police were completely out of control. Um, they they assaulted so many people. They you know they were shooting rubber bullets haphazardly into the crowd. You know, one there was one instance where. Um, actually, Brock Willett was covering one of them and he, You know, he was standing right there, and a kid had his eye blown out of the side of his head by a rubber bullet. So, you know, that was that was something that concerned me, was the way the right and my friends in conservative circles were just kind of laughing at all of it. And I just kept thinking this is going to get turned back the other way at some point. Like, there's no way this doesn't, because I'm just watching you know, law enforcement be abused. And then even even to the point where in Portland, you know, we can debate about whether or not federal troops should have gone in, you know, when Trump ordered that, you know, but it is what happened. And it was all very dystopian to watch, you know, from that kind of insider's viewpoint where I saw these federal troops going in. And, and it was just, it was really something to behold. And it just always felt like it was like a warning and it wasn't being heeded the sacredness of the First Amendment and how much we should have protected more than, even with people that we didn't agree with. You know, and that's not to say, like, say, even personally that I agreed with a lot of what was being said. Obviously, Black Lives Matter is a Marxist organization. You had a lot of Antifa, and we actually saw a lot of instigation throughout those protests as well that couldn't really be, uh, ascribed to Antifa or BLM. It was likely, you know, provocateurs being paid separately. Um, I know, you know, because in the end, I, you know, I had even tracked payments with BLM, uh, to different people who were involved in the protest movements. I had insiders within Antifa that were giving me information I mean, it was it was nuts, and and I just I guess I just had a very acute understanding of the way this was going to turn around, and I think we saw that on January sixth.
1: I know some folks have done research whenever they were donating to the Biden or the Act Blue, which is a yeah. company that handled um, Black Lives Matter donations, that they were going to the Biden administration's uh, campaign, uh, being funneled through that way. But uh, where did the money trail lead as to who was the one paying? BLM.
3: Well, in the end, I mean, a lot of donations were going straight into BLM, and we've seen how Patrice Cullers has really, you know, used a lot of that money for her own benefit. And then, of course, you know, that was going into the Democratic Party because of the way they were handling it. Um, But, you know, I'm sure there were payments on the way out as well. You know, what I was, what was known to me was that people were being paid to conduct certain acts you know as far as where that money was coming from that was a lot harder to trace because it's like people would get a note and then they would get basically a payment through you know any manner of ways you know usually like cash app or venmo or something like that and so there was a lot of money moving in small amounts that's very hard to trace You know, the thing is, is that if somebody's working for ActBlue, depending on what their salary is, they can basically do things as like, oh, well, that was just me doing an independent contribution. And so a lot of things get obfuscated that way. And That's my opinion uh, based on what I saw. And and again, it was known. It was known that that was going on uh, by people in the government. Just like there's always things that are known that are going on that... They choose not to do anything about for whatever reason, you know, but to me, a lot of that was was still being orchestrated to just get people's mood to the right level. I mean, it, you, when you look at, you know, the way coronavirus was rolled out and they got everybody into a state of fear, and then you have these giant riots and it just starts increasing that tension within our country. And, you know, again, in retrospect, looking back at all of it and being a student of some of these things, you know, obviously the work of Yuri Bezmenov, the KGB defector. And when you talk about, you know, the ideas of subversion, this really seems kind of like the last act. Um, Yeah, absolutely. And there are attempts to set up
1: Marxism slash communism here in the United States. And uh, Yuri Bezmenov, the very famous video of him sitting down and basically describing, you uh, know, I believe it's what five steps or something like that and how to yeah. destroy democratic society. Um, you know, a lot of folks should really look into that and, you know, listen to what this person says, because it, it truly is a playbook, um, of, of what we can see happening today. Um, I always also recommend folks pay attention to, uh, Saul Alinsky's rules for radicals, um, that tends to follow the, the same similar, I should say similar, uh, playbook in establishing uh, communism in a democratic nation or the United States specifically.
3: Absolutely. And that was something, you know, when I was a lot younger, and of course, even philosophically, I still kind of hold to um, anarchist ideology uh, to a certain extent, I guess, more of a philosophy of freedom, like extreme libertarianism, maybe. But so I was aware of a lot of these different tactics and how they would get used. I mean, when I was a kid, you know, and I had, you know, blue hair and spikes and I was reading stuff, you know, they would, they would talk about direct action. And so I think we saw a lot of that, but you know, that's even from an anarchist philosophy where I always thought Antifa was a bizarre group because I never understood how any self-respecting anarchist would align themselves with a Marxist because it's just, it's the antithesis a lot of ways just with a left-wing bent so it's it it, to me it was it was there was never any difference really between marxism and fascism and you know because in the end they're both authoritarian systems i mean there is a lot of work out there they do have a playbook and when it comes to Besmanoff, i mean i think we're gonna see you know the fruits of that to a certain extent because you know, obviously at some point that operation kind of became self-sustaining, and I think that it became mostly self-sustaining through the Democratic Party in this country. You know, obviously I don't have any love for the Republican Party either, um, but their problems are kind of the other side of that coin. I mean, if if I go back to things that were frustrating even before that with, you know, the Patriot Act and the way we conducted the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan you know I can I can kind of pick that apart but it's from a different level and it's and it's like I've always kind of envisioned it as you know authoritarianism or like neo-feudalism walks into our country and it's wearing both a left and a right boot if that makes any sense oh absolutely
1: um you know I've always envisioned in antifa um as being just the epitome of hypocrisy because like you say they're they say they're anarchists, but they follow a marxist ideology they uh, claim to be against anti-fascism or be against fascism, you know, anti-fascist, but yet they used fascist
3: tactics of silencing their opposition with uh, violence and, and things of that sort. And, exactly. Uh, They're useful idiots. I mean, that's that's really the term. That's, that's what they've become. And I don't even think a lot of the kids that are involved in those movements have any understanding of what their actions or behaviors are impacting in this country. They just, it just sounds cool. You know, they're indoctrinated through the schools to think a certain way without questioning it. There's not a whole lot of critical thinking going on on the grassroots level there. You know, from a, from a operational standpoint or an administrative standpoint, there is a lot of thinking going on and a lot of planning and a very good understanding of behavioral psychology. And they, and they manipulate that to their benefit and then they get them to play it out exactly the way they want them to and the
1: people doing it for reasons that we all understand they think they come up with it on their own which makes it that much harder to trace back to their sources what led you to january 6th being involved in the uh the rally down there and and all that share share what that day entailed for you and and
3: kind of what got you to go well, I think we all knew that there was a potential for problems with the election. I mean, they forecasted that. There was a lot of forecasting on both sides. I mean, Trump had talked about it and others. And then we saw it actually go down when the election occurred. And, and it was pretty obvious that something was wrong. Um, and then I, I knew that they were going to do some sort of a rally on the 14th of November. So that was kind of when I said, okay, well, I'll just go cover this myself. And so that's what I did. Uh, I went out to cover that event and actually, you know, my friend Vladimir that had gone with me to Armenia, he went with me on that first trip to DC, uh, had a, had a really good time, uh, for the most part, you know, obviously the day of the rally, I mean, there was, it was massive. There was all kinds of people in Freedom Plaza there. And then everybody peacefully marched to the Supreme Court. There were some relatively minor altercations with Antifa, BLM during the day, and then we decided to go ahead and walk back to you know my hotel and their hotel, which I was staying on 14th Street. Um, I think just about a block over from the White House to the to the east. So on the way back, I mean, y- we saw a lot of that. And Of course, I'm not the kind, you know, I'm not walking around wearing MAGA gear or anything. I'm just dressed how I dressed. I got my Pittsburgh Pirates hat. You know, my friends they had their MAGA hats on. That were with me, and of course, people were driving by and screaming threats and obscenities at them. So that was the general mood. And and as we walked back, I remember stopping. I spoke to some Capitol police that were right by the Capitol and tried to you know get their opinion of things and and what their read was. They they were nice enough. They didn't do anything on camera, but they just said, you know, it's kind of what it is. What we deal with every night. So I was learning as I went. You know, even to, even with the right wing groups, I didn't really follow anybody or know anybody particularly. And so everything was learning as I went. Went back to the hotel, and then I actually went and Owen oh, Troyer and the Infowars crew and all those guys. They were out in front of the JW Marriott, and so I was I was kind of hanging out with them. I was drinking Troyer and you know and incidentally all the beer got drunk and so i was like oh well, it's no big deal i said i'll go to my hotel room i've got a bottle of tequila i'll bring that back so i walked north on 14th to my hotel because every time i was in dc i stayed at the hilton garden and before i could get to my hotel room there was a line of police that had blocked off the street and they were saying well you can't go this way and i was like well how do i get back you know to my hotel and they said well you've got to go to the west Now, west from 14th, right where they had it blocked off, led straight to BLM Plaza. Now, I know that there had been... See, and that's the other thing, is that just a few hours earlier, Antifa was in Freedom Plaza burning um, a bunch of gear from street vendors and everything, and the police were just standing around making a perimeter around them and protecting them. Do you see any ideas of like pre-planning on that? Um,
1: I know a lot of folks point at the fact that they had pallets of bricks everywhere and Oh, well, yeah, dear. this
3: is, yeah this is November fourteenth, well before January sixth, yeah. Um, so I you know I didn't I didn't see any pallets of bricks. The other th- thing that I saw that was weird, kind of on that particular trip. Was that there were people who were dressed as Antifa or dressed as Trump supporters that were getting in and out of, you know, cop cars. Like if you would get away from the crowd, you would see some weird things going on on side streets. So I I knew that there was a lot of just funny stuff going on, which goes back to when they directed me to BLM Plaza, because it just seemed to me like if you're trying to prevent altercations, why would you funnel a bunch of Trump supporters into BLM Plaza? But that's exactly what they were doing. And so everyone went Everyone went that way. And of course, there was a huge altercation there that night. There was a lot of fights, um, you know, tearing down the Black Lives Matter banner off of the church there. And you know it was just kind of crazy, and I actually ended up going right up to the fence that they had around the White House there, and people were tearing the signs down and everything, and I wasn't particularly thrilled with that because, again, you know, I, regardless of what I think about people's beliefs, I think they have a right to express them, and I just didn't think that that was particularly a positive situation. And and Joey Gibson from Patriot Prayer, some people may know him. He actually walked up to me and he saw that, you know, cause I was recording it and he just said, Hey man, you, you doing all right or whatever. I said, you know, I said, I said, you know, it's still people's speech. It's, you know, I'm not really a fan of what I'm saying. He's all, no, I get it. He's like, Hey man, checks out. So I, I walked with him for a while and talked with him. Real nice guy. You know, obviously walking along and talking with different proud boys and getting to know them. You know, I saw this completely different reality than what was reported uh, in mainstream media. And so I said, okay, well, this is this is kind of an interesting story. I said, I think this is this is definitely something to follow. You know, the next day I remember I left D.C. because I actually went down to Arlington National Cemetery, spent some time there before I got on my flight out, and I left. The next trip I took was to Atlanta, Georgia, uh, where there were also protests and rallies. That one, you know, there were some noteworthy things that went on. But it was it was more just kind of behind the scenes and kind of strange things going on and strange character. But it, you know that a lot of that stuff would become interesting later. So it was just more of me getting familiar with the different characters, whether it was Nick Fuentes, you know that was kind of the first time he really hit my radar was when I was in Atlanta because he was a speaker there. Um, and just others within that entire movement. You know, when I was in Atlanta, I went to the Antifa side of the line. I snuck around the block because police weren't letting people go that way. And I went to the Antifa BLM side of the line and actually had some decent conversation with people until Democratic Socialists of America decided that I was unholy for not wearing a mask. And they kind of chased me out of there a little bit. And then, you know, and then everybody went to the yard right across from the governor's mansion there and, and they protested there well into the night. Of course, everybody just, you know, standing around generally being nice and peaceful and, and drinking. I mean, there was a lot of drinking at all of these rallies, no doubt. Um, so, so that was kind of how that was. The next one I went to was actually in Phoenix, which that was where I met Jacob Chansley, the QAnon shaman. Uh, nice guy, real nice guy. Um, I met him there. There was another proud boy that I met and spoke with down there uh, went by the name of Hooby, You know, so it was just, again, kind of getting used to the atmosphere. I I hung out in the hotel where Giuliani was presenting evidence to the Arizona State Legislature. I heard some pretty interesting conversations while in that lobby. Obviously, Ali Alexander, uh, Michelle Malkin, um, and uh, I'm trying to think, Dr. Brian Corgi was there. So there was a lot of these different players within the you know the MAGA right wing movement um, and so they were just continuing to kind of organize to that effect there was you know I'll tell you this that there was discussion that evening <laughs> there, there was discussion in the lobby where I, I do distinctly remember Ali Alexander talking about hey we need to just go into the Capitol, um, and then talking about the Arizona Capitol. And I thought that that was noteworthy enough, you know, I, I just thought to myself, I said, well, that's, that's definitely something. And I think anybody who followed it for any time, they realized that, you know, he was always kind of that way where he said, we're not going to get permits to do rallies or freedom of speech. I mean, so he was very aggressive in his methods throughout that, you know, uh, the time in the post-election uh, protests that is something that stuck with me. Of course, nothing really happened at the Capitol. People went there in Phoenix, but nothing really happened. There was hardly anybody there. So it was just kind of like a nice, a nice little thing. Nothing to note. You know, this, you know, of course, two years later, you go back through some of my live stream footage. And there was one that recently, you know, kind of got some attention because it was an interaction between Baked Alaska and Ray Epps. And so there was this, this interaction with them where, you know, Baked Alaska was kind of being his typical uh, provocative self a little bit verbally and, and talking about Jewish subversion and things like that. And, and Ray Epps actually walked up to him and said, this is America, everybody has a right to speak. And then there was kind of an argument. And to the point where I turned, because, you know, obviously being who I am and how I am, I said, I just kind of turned to Ray Epps and pointed the camera. And I said, I don't know. I kind of like that guy. He's all right. And then that was it, you know. And I guess that has some bearing on everything in the interest because it's it's it was an interaction with those two. But I think for people who are outside of the space, they don't realize that really, even though these protests were going around the country, it was always the same people. So, you know, you could say that some of it was grassroots, but it was definitely always organized on a national level, these protests and the different people that went to it. That was something that, that I observed through all that. So then the next trip was back to D.C., Uh, for the December 12th rally, which that that was kind of a completely different mood. There was a lot of Proud Boys there, Um, but there was a lot of altercations between police and Proud Boys, and you could just feel like Things were getting more tense, and there was a stronger propensity for violence because everyone was getting frustrated with all of it. Obviously, Antifa was still doing their stuff, BLM, where they would attack Trump supporters. And so the whole situation was just becoming more volatile. That was kind of my main takeaway from that one. You know, you have the hotel Harrington there, and so I was there uh, during the stabbing. That happened right there you know obviously Enrique Tario when the when the Black Lives Matter banner was burned I was right there um it was definitely a lot to consider but that was my main takeaway was that things were were uh, getting more heated up I met Joe Biggs um the following day and I didn't know who he was and so this has always stuck out in my mind but I just met him on the street and we got to talking and, and he he was great, really good guy. And and he was kind of bemoaning all of the things that had happened the evening before and saying what a waste of time it was for everyone to be engaging in street violence against, you know, these kids that are BLM Antifa. And when everyone knows that the real problems are, you know, with with those in our government who just continue to let this go. I mean people like Jerry Nadler who say that Antifa is a myth you know, while they actively work to burn our country down. So, I mean, that was a really cool interaction with him. Uh, really good guy, natural leader. And it was funny where I didn't even know who he was. Again, I'm just kind of walking around being kind of ignorant. Uh, and he actually came on as a guest, Joe Biggs did, I think it was on January 3rd of 2021. He came on as a guest. And he talked about how things were going to be different this time around leading up to January 6th. It was all very you know, cryptic, really, at the time. I think we've seen now throughout the chats and everything that there was kind of an attitude of being incognito as far as a, a method of dealing with Antifa there. And then actually that very same night, Stu Peters, because I had worked with Stu Peters throughout the summer of 2020 when he was getting his show started. I helped him with a lot of things and I was given reports to him from D.C. and other places but he actually came on my show that night. Then I took off and I, I went to went to D.C. to cover January 6th but I didn't even really want to go. I, I remember sitting there with my kids and I was just thinking about everything and I was like man this is said i don't know i said i just have a weird feeling about this one but you know in the end i decided to go because that was the story i was covering and it felt like this would be kind of the conclusion of that story to a certain extent did you uh did you arrive on the 6th were you there for the 5th um a lot of events that were happening
1: uh, the night before
3: yeah i actually got in on the 4th and you know because i knew that there were rallies scheduled for the 5th as well and so I got in on the 4th and, you know, did my normal thing where I kind of walk around at night and see what's going on. But it was pretty quiet. It was relatively quiet for all intents and purposes. And then on the 5th, you know, I went to Freedom Plaza. I was there, you know, relatively early. I got right up to the front near the stage made sure I got a good spot to stream that stuff. And so I stood there all day long, all the way into the evening. know through the sleet and everything else just kind of standing there recording and talking to people you know there was kind of a mood i think anybody that was there i mean there was there was a there was a somberness to it it was like with the weather and everything else that evening it just felt it felt different and then you know people were reporting that there were staging of pallets of bricks and things around the city so you know i think everybody was kind of trepidatious about what they thought was going to happen the next day and And so, you know that all kind of went down. there was There was a really, really cool conversation between Owen Troyer and and a woman from Peru that I can't, I don't know her name. I've never exactly positively identified her, um, where she just talked about and warned about you know what would happen, what Americans need to do to prevent you know communism from taking over. Things that she was uh, bringing to light. Well, a lot of it was just, you know, to speak up and to not be intimidated and to not be violent and to stay peaceful and to keep speaking and keep speaking and keep speaking. And that's what I've heard from a lot of, a lot of people that I've spoken to from various, um, communist countries and regimes. That's, that's kind of the thing they all say is that it's almost like, because you engage in violence and it just gets twisted against you. Uh you know, back in August of 2020, I interviewed uh, Lily Tong Williams is her name, and she actually escaped the Cultural Revolution in China. She, and she said the same thing. And then obviously, I have a lot of friends from Eastern Europe, and they've all said the same thing. You know, when we talked about, you know, communist regimes and how to defeat them, it's really done through the First Amendment. So, you know, I think that was, that was again, my main takeaway is just how powerful speech can be if people are willing to go all the way with it. You know, it's not yield and to not back down. just keep speaking, regardless of what they do to you. Yeah. And uh, you
1: know one big tenant in this movement is that we are staunchly nonviolent and uh that we need to keep truth alive. You know, we, we see this as a, a, a war of ideologies and uh you know truth is the first casualty of war. And if we let truth die then we lose all hope and any chance to uh to, to win this but if we can keep truth alive then we'll still have a leg in this fight to uh, bring the awareness because once you you know, make somebody that might not know what's going on and help, help them to realize uh, the truth of a situation they, they never go back to uh, allowing the wool to be pulled over their eyes oh. it, at least it's a lot harder I shouldn't say they never go back because of
3: course complacency is a thing yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think that's something through all of it, which is which is what's so sad about what happened on the sixth. And I can get into that, but it's like just that foreshadowing where it's like, I think a lot of people got goaded into behaviors that they shouldn't have, you know? And that's and that's the real danger with these information wars and these ideological wars is that it's all it's all fought on a different level than most people are used to even considering you know i think americans have a tendency especially on the right wing to just think well you know if the commies come into the country i'm gonna shoot them with my guns but the reality is, is that the commies have been here they've been here for a long time and they have effectively beaten us in the in the area of hearts and minds and, and, and information and we've beat back considerably in the last two years but it's it's not been without loss and I think one of the biggest losses was January 6th getting into that so you know I I was I leave the rally and I go back to BLM Plaza and so I was there where there was kind of the infamous uh scene where baked Alaska is screaming fed 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 at Ray Epps I remember I bought a shirt from Bobby Pickles that night that said Enrique did nothing wrong. And I stood in front of BLM Plaza with it. Another journalist took a picture of that and they used that against me. They, they really didn't like that picture. U.S. attorney, Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was one of their more central pieces of evidence that I, you know, was an insurrectionist or whatever they want to say. But, uh, so, you know, the next morning I get up and, and, I was trying to connect with OpsLins Media. I'd worked out, you know, kind of a deal with Ron Hammond, the CEO of that company, where he was going to let me stream on his app because I'd had so many problems with getting banned. And so the morning of January sixth, me was spent trying to make that work and trying to get that connection to hold, and it and it wasn't. Um, I mean, I think anybody who's ever been in app development can probably understand why. You know, Facebook and Instagram are so much better for streaming because of the money and the infrastructure and everything else. Um, But yeah, I I struggled with connecting. Of course, Trump was speaking and I was pretty far away. So I kind of milled around the Washington Monument, you know, during most of that time. And then I, you know, I think it was right around 1230 when I decided that I was going to just go ahead and go to the Capitol because Trump had already said, "Eh, we're going to walk down to the Capitol, you know, got everybody excited. So I said, okay, I see what's going on here. Everybody's going to move that way. And I knew that there were planned protests. I had actually taken a tent with me to D.C. that time because I figured if it goes into a 10-day investigation and people are kind of occupying the Capitol grounds, that'll be how it goes. You know, there I go, stupid hippie kid. And so I walked to the Capitol, and, you know, I remember stopping at the halfway point, and, you know, for those that don't know, you know, I've got a lot of friends in the intelligence community, and so I had somebody give me a a heads up that the pipe bomb had been found or whatever, so they were basically telling me to kind of keep my wits about me. And so I just, you know, at that point I went to the Capitol, but by the time I got there it had already popped off. You know, I estimate that I got there sometime around 1245 maybe. And so I kind of went through the crowd, got to the front of the crowd there on the west side by the stairs. and same old thing had kind of positioned myself between police and protesters. And it was it was rowdy, but it wasn't anything too crazy compared to what I had seen in, in previous weeks and months. You know, you had you know Guy Reffitt and others that were in that kind of group that were pushing up the stairs there and then there was the incident where Derek Vargo was pushed you know from the stairs and hit the ground and then that's when the mood of the crowd really really changed it it became increasingly hostile at that point
1: he's the um, one that was climbing up the side of the stairwell and was, yeah uh,
3: yeah he was kind of, of... Yeah, yep he was walking along the side there and of course you know in the in that time and place again you know we've learned so much in the last 2 years but in that time of place, when he hit the ground, he wasn't responsive. He wasn't moving. And it was like, you know, in my mind, I thought he'd hit his head or broken his neck or something, and he was dead. So, again, the crowd responded. And then, like, I had people screaming at me. They're like, did you get that on camera? Did you get that on? In which I, you know, I was live streaming, and so I did, you know. But, you know, this might as well be as good a time as any to just say that, you know, for a lot of reasons, because of the saturation of cell service bandwidth and everything, that video never... Downloaded to any of my social media, so even though there were people that watched it live while it all happened, and quite a few of them, it's lost as far as I know. The large majority of that footage, you know, that happens, and then, and then, like I say, there's tear gas going off, and it was just all pretty chaotic. And I think there's a fair amount of footage. I know Taylor Hanson was standing right there when a lot of that was going on as well. You know, then the police just kind of said, "Oh well, we're going to stand down," and so people went and started going up the stairs. And so I was like, "Okay, well, I guess that's what's going on." So this, this one, you were down in the in the grass, the, the yard of the Capitol. Yeah, the, yeah, just north of the stairs there, by the inauguration stage and scaffolding. Yeah. <laughs> so then I, you know, then I go up those stairs, and then I turn right when I get to the top. I turned right because I saw that there were some stairs that went to the top of the, uh, you know, inauguration bleachers and scaffolding. So I said, "Well, I want to get a shot of the crowd, you know, looking out to the west, you know." And so I went to the top of those stairs, and there was a Capitol police officer at the top. She she was uh, she has aviator sunglasses. Uh, kind of reminded me—I can't remember the name of the character from Police Cap Callahan, Sergeant Callahan from Police. Anyways, yeah. So she she uh, she kind of yells at me. She says, "You get down. You can't be up here." I say, "Yes, ma'am." Uh, turned around, went on my way. Back down towards that upper terrace. And by then, you had quite a few people that were kind of pushed in to that area between the central rotunda building and the Senate chamber. Um, And so, you know, so that was kind of going on. And I kind of was in and amongst that crowd right by a door. There's a door that enters on the south side of the Senate uh, building. And, and it kind of opens up into that Upper West Terrace, but it wasn't the one where the initial breach. So this is the part of the entire thing that the Department of Justice and the U.S. Attorney's Office has ignored, just completely ignored it about what I told them um, and, and what you know, I finally was able to find. Uh, with gary mcbride so that door was right then you know it opened from the inside now when i look back at the time stamps it's still hard to tell because you had the initial breach which i believe was at 113 you had the initial breach where there was the guy that we kind of tended to call red hat where he had a two by four and he broke through the window and then dominic Pozzola, you know then used that riot shield to kind of clear the glass out and then people started entering there and again, I didn't see any of that with my own eyes, but that's, you know, all in retrospect. So those doors that I'm talking about, they open from the inside and people start going in there. So that was where I made my initial entry. And so I went in there and I encountered, there was a female police officer there as well, kind of at some stairs that would have gone up to the second floor. And what I assume, I think that goes to the gallery. But, um, you know, she said, well, you can't be here. And I said, I'm a journalist, you know, so I'm just trying to document what's going on. I think it's important that people see it. She says, no, I understand that. I get all that, but you can't be here. I need you to go out the way you came. Right. And I said, I said, okay. And I started moving that way. And then another cop came along and he kind of escorted me, not anything violent, but you know, he was definitely making it clear that I should leave the area. And I just remember saying to him, I said, oh, thanks for not kicking my ass, you know, because there I go again trying to make light of things. So I get back out onto the terrace. Now, you know, kind of is a flash forward and everything else, but that's that's why I say that that footage was never discussed in anything even though I told the FBI about it I told them that's where I initially entered and so it just seems kind of bizarre to me that they've kind of tried to keep that out of anything in court and even to the point where when I was last looking through any of that uh, video footage it seems as though there's a 20 20 minute block of footage missing and in that 20 minute block would be where I talked to those police the other thing is, is that I don't know if somebody's already identified these guys. This is the problem when there's so many defendants, it's really hard to tell who's been charged and who hasn't. But the the two that actually opened that door, they just left. So it was kind of a bizarre thing where if they were there to open doors and say, hey, everybody come in, come on in, come on in, that that's what they would have done. And then they would have gone ahead, and continued, you know, with being in the building. But that's not what they did. They left. They opened the doors and they left. That goes against just natural human behavior. Well, yeah. And then and then I've got to ask the question, too, because I entered into that door at like 2.15. It might have been 2.14 or 2.15. So you're talking less than two minutes after the initial breach. So let's just assume that those guys, and I know that Gary McBride is working on trying to track those guys back to the initial breach because you don't want to go full Alex Jones right off the bat, right? But but it's like, so far, we haven't been able to track them back to that point. And the other thing you have to consider is is that they had to have known what they planned to do as soon as they entered. Because you're, you're talking about only two minutes to move through the building and to get to that door to open it up.
1: You know, I, I agree with you, uh, what you said earlier, too, that, you know, left and right. Now, uh, Personally, my opinion is that they're just... different wings of the same corrupt bird and this isn't about republicans versus democrats it's uh right versus wrong and and saving our country versus giving it over to those that have malicious intent so um i think you and i think quite similar when it comes to uh how these things played out and I, i believe that there was infiltration on uh on both sides so that it could be a controlled situation where they create chaos um to discredit any Uh, anybody that tried to speak up as to both you know putting out false information as well as uh, orchestrating an event and letting the useful idiots play it out for you but all of that planning and coordination ahead of time is uh, strictly based in understanding how to manipulate human behavior and you know I I was there I I witnessed a lot of the uh, agitators and provocateurs in the crowd you know, the methods in which they use to try to incite the crowd to to do certain things.
3: You know, that's the other thing that kind of hides that is that they don't understand. You don't need an entire army to do this sort of thing with a large crowd. I mean, the reality about human beings is that we kind of have this strange habit of resorting to herd behavior just like any other creature. And so if people are herded into a certain situation. They behave like sheep and they'll do what the shepherds tell them. And I think we saw a lot of that on January 6th, even going back to, you know, this idea when they herded everybody into BLM Plaza, you know, uh, you know, a month prior, two months prior, where, where it's like, again, they just need to get people into the right areas. And it almost seems to me like from some sort of an operational level, that's what, that's what happened there with Capitol Police. You didn't even need all the Capitol Police to know what was going on. And I know that most of them didn't. I mean, most of the Capitol Police I encountered when it was, you know, tense situations, they looked legitimately scared. It wasn't like, oh, this is part of some plan. It was like, what the hell is going on? And I have no idea how to respond and I'm not getting any orders, you know, so there was a lot of orchestrated chaos. All around in my opinion you know not too long ago i think it was 2017 maybe all of those windows in the Capitol were replaced with bulletproof smash proof windows with the exception of a very small few there weren't that many places where you could smash and break windows and in- windows and enter and one of those places is where that initial breach occurred When I was there, it was bizarre to almost see, like, how the crowd moved that way, and then police allowed them and funneled them to go right to those doors where they could then gain entry. You know, I think we'll find out more probably 50 years from now when things get declassified, hopefully sooner, is that there weren't that many places to enter the Capitol, you know, using those means. So I entered at at 219, and then I headed south to the crypt area. Uh, there was kind of a line of police kind of stacked up there. And they were blocking any entrance going further through. So same old thing. I'm right between, you know, kind of a mass of protesters and the police. Zachary Allam was there right next to me being his typical self that we've seen where he was agitating the situation. You know, threatening violence against the police officers and, and just making things not good. I told him, I told him to uh, shut the fuck up. And he kind of did. And then there was a big push from behind and everything pushed forward. And then the police line kind of dissipated at that point as the crowd just pushed through. And so you're just kind of caught in all that. And then it relented. And so I continued walking down the hallway uh, to the south and then there was a hallway. So this goes back to kind of what we're talking about with, with the way everything seems a little orchestrated. Was that there, you know, so I walked then uh, back to the west in this hallway, which again, I have no idea where I'm at in the building at that time. In retrospect, I now know that that hallway, it could go either outside or straight up the main stairs to the rotunda. So before I even got to that turn to the north, there was three police officers standing there and they weren't issuing commands. They weren't saying anything. They were... They were completely unhelpful in the situation. But, you know, so that was kind of what then later became central to the prosecution. So there was kind of, there's a situation where the police aren't saying anything. Nobody's saying anything. And I say, brother, stand with us. You know, to this day, it's like I say, I kick myself in the ass over it, uh, where it's like I wish I'd been more objective in the moment. I don't really know what I was thinking, except I just didn't want to see any more altercations or violence. It was like I was trying to de-escalate the situation from whatever capacity I could. I can understand you there. There's a uh,
1: a few things in my case where I wish I'd have just shut my mouth because I didn't really realize what the words meant that I was even saying or, or how they right. could have been you know, used and whatever and, um, you know, in in hindsight, yeah, just consider it the fog, I guess.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah there's there's definitely there's definitely that and and it, you know and i had been you know i was on pretty good behavior it's not like i was chanting with people or anything like that you know i do remember i sang some people on my stream said hey sing sing something because you know people that have known me for a long time they've always appreciated my singing and so, you know, I started singing America the Beautiful at some point, just kind of quietly for the audience. So that was kind of an interesting thing. But as far as, like, screaming stop the steal or Trump, 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 that's not who I am. So I, was, I wasn't engaging in any of that. But there was that in the hallway where I said, "Brothers, stand with us. And again, that would become central to the government's prosecution because that portion of my live stream was, was screen recorded by, by uh, the producer of ACTJ, which was my show. He was he had tuned in and he started screen recording like right at that point you know a failure in objectivity doesn't make me feel like i should just you know go lock myself in a closet and cry about it and what a horrible person i am or anything like that it just it is what it is is it regrettable yes but it's not like regretting killing someone or, you know, or like I had any intention to destroy democracy that day at all, or any of the other absurd things that get said. So, you know, it is what it you is. To, you mean you didn't want to cause another 9 11? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I, and that's, and that's something. See, that's something I even told to the judge, and that was very sincere. I had zero interest in the shutdown of proceedings because, again, you have to ask who benefits, who benefited from everything that happened that day. It wasn't people who thought there were issues with the election. There was no benefit. You know, so when you look at who perpetrated a crime, the first question you have to ask is who benefits and who benefited. It was Nancy Pelosi. So, you know, we can leave it at that for right now. But,
1: uh, we're going go from there.
3: Yeah. So, so those police, they don't say anything. They don't issue commands. They just then start retreating down the hallway and everybody starts following them. And there was something in me that at that point I just said, I don't like this, you know? Uh, you know, I just did, there was something about it. I just didn't like, and I remember even saying, you know, like boys, it's this weird thing where it's again, the fog of the fog of war, so to speak. But I, you know, I was just like, you know, don't go that way. Well, everybody went that way. And, and what happened later after reviewing footage, because again, I just turned around and walked back the other way. But what we know now is that those police then went and opened up another set of doors under the guise of letting them out. Okay. So the police went and opened those doors. And, and what's more bizarre is that, of course, you know, oh, we're here to let these guys out. But people just started coming in because they were like, oh, well, the police opened doors. And then that's the kind of famous footage that happened right then and there at that point where people are coming in. And one of those cops that I encountered says, I don't agree with it, but I respect it as they just stand there and let people funnel in. You know, I kind of look again and I go, okay, well, they opened these doors and then they opened those doors. And, And so it was, again, it was about opening doors and finding excuses to open doors. Others that were in that group that went down that hallway wound up going all the way into the Senate and they all got felony charges as a result. Jacob Chansley being one of them. Yep. And so I, I, at that point, you know, I had decided to walk the other way, which I did. And there's like that other, there's like a little room. There, that's circular. I can't remember what they call it. And of course, I was being my usual uh, self, you know. And I was flirting with one of the Capitol police officers there, named Miles. I was, I was trying to be cute with her, and she was smiling. I don't know. It was funny. So that, you know, the, more of just the bizarreness, where it's like, then it, there's an interaction like that, and then, and then, right down the hallway from there, someone's trying to wash, you know, pepper out of their eyes or whatever. And so then I went up the stairs. I remember taking a shot of George Washington's bust right by these circular stairs and, you know, he had a MAGA hat on. And I thought that that was an interesting shot or, you know, just kind of crazy visual. And so, you know, I went up those stairs towards the Rotunda area and people were in the Rotunda at that point and then they're kind of milling about, you know, so I said, okay, I'm walking around. And so then I went you know, down through Statuary Hall. You know, there's there's footage of that. And then and then that hallway in between Statuary Hall and and Congress. You know, so I stopped there and I was drinking some water, just kinda hanging out, kinda taking it all in. You know, a little bit later after the crowd kinda pushed through the police line that was there, same old thing where they set up a line and then they just let people go. You know, they everybody that was there kinda ended up going down that hallway and, and towards the speaker's chamber and I stayed I stayed in that hallway. And then you know, then there was a gunshot. Then what looked like, you know, and I think we now know were federal law enforcement with DHS, they came kinda running through heavily armed. And then, you know, like the say the, the whole mood kinda changed. And then they started ordering people to go back to the rotunda. I said everybody needs to be out of here back to the rotunda back to the rotunda back to the rotunda so okay i went back to the rotunda and i sat down you know everybody there was the one guy i can't i can't remember his name he was lighting up joints for everybody so there was a lot of marijuana being passed around in there
1: i just to um, take a quick recap that that gunshot was the gunshot that took the life of ashley babbitt
3: yes sir yeah yeah uh you know again i wasn't there i didn't see it with my own eyes but i was i don't know pretty close pretty within close yeah well yeah and i mean it, it literally to the point where if i had i could have been there within you know 30 seconds probably of a brisk walk um so yeah You know, that's kind of another one of those things where it's like, am I thankful I wasn't there? I don't know. You know, it's like you go there to cover stuff and things just kind of are how they are. So they, you know, they herded everybody back into the rotunda. And then, you know, like say it seemed like to me, you know, again, you know, I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe this is going to be like a peaceful sit-in now or something. I have no idea what's going on. And police weren't being hostile or anything, right? It was, again, more bizarreness. And so I sat down on one of the benches and then... And then at some point they just decided, well, we're we're gonna get funky in here. And then it got funky. And then they started trying to shove everybody out. And I felt like I was gonna get crushed. And and again, I've got all this footage still, so people can just kind of kind of go watch that. Uh, you can go to my YouTube. I've got it up on there, uh, Free Range Journalist. That's the latest channel. Hopefully that one doesn't get banned. You know, but it was just this really tense situation where. You know, I didn't know how it was going to work out I you know I still think back to that and I'm very very thankful I got out alive because there were so many ways that could have gone wrong there was a woman who was right in front of me and she passed out and fell on the floor and I held out my hand you know on the chest of the police in front of me and was screaming we've got to make some room and so I've, I felt like I was just like holding back the crowd and trying to not let her get trampled eventually they were able to get her and kind of pull her back behind their line. And, and, you know, I, I don't even know who she was. I've never been able to identify her. I spent months thinking that that was Roseanne Boylan because initially there were reports that she had died in the rotunda. So that you know there was a lot of conflicting reports right afterwards that just made everything a lot stranger. And continue to do so, you know. So after a lot of pushing and shoving in there and everything else, that eventually that subsided, and the cops were like, okay, everybody in here is under arrest, and I'm sitting there thinking, okay, well I'm gonna have to pull my media paperwork out for him to look at. Okay, what am I dealing with? And then they said, okay, just kidding, you know, pretty much everybody just leave. You know, I said, okay. So that, you know, they kind of escorted everybody out. I left. Um, I, I stood around on the, they put us out through the memorial doors. And then I left that area. And I actually walked over to the Supreme Court where I talked with some uh, police there and asked them if they knew what was going on. And of course they didn't. they were just doing whatever they were doing. I walked back to the east side or the yeah the west side of the capitol building again and kind of just took it all in by then there was a huge american flag up on the inauguration scaffolding and everything else it was just it was all very bizarre and i didn't really know what would come next so you know i had gotten a call from one of my media contacts rocky Stucci, in his situation room and he asked if i could make an appearance on his show and give him a report and so i said yeah i could do that and so, you know, that's what I did. I walked back to my hotel room, and then later on that evening, they started locking everyone in their hotel rooms, and that was kind of crazy. Got up the next morning. The, the mood was still bizarre. I actually went up to Georgetown to get a beer because all the restaurants in D.C. were shut down. Saw that they were arresting people at the airport and everything else, and that was when I decided that it would be best uh, for me to take a friend of mine uh, Michaela, she had said that she would help me drive all the way back to Denver and so that's that's what I did I rented a car and and she and another friend we all took turns driving uh, straight back to Denver and then from there I had another friend come pick me up because you know I just wanted to see my boys so that's what I did.
1: After all those events you know like you said you made it back home um, eventually you were arrested.
3: How did yeah. that How did that play out? So they, they contacted me, I think it was 10 days later, like on the 15th, less than 10 days later. The FBI came to my house, knocked on the door, left a card. Um, so I gave them a call. They said, can you come in and interview? I said, sure. So I did so. I went in, gave them an interview, let them know everything I knew uh, from a lot of different levels. And so they took that for whatever it was worth. You know, I gave them, you know, the footage that was already publicly posted. So it didn't really matter, you know, and, and they said, okay, that's, that's great, whatever. And I didn't hear from them for another three months until I interviewed John Sullivan on my podcast. And then I was charged and arrested a week later. What were you charged with? Uh, standard four misdemeanors. Okay. The, boy, the boilerplate misdemeanors that I can never even remember all of them because I've just looked at them every day since and said, "What am I looking at here?"
1: Whenever, how how did they arrest you? Like, was it the typical SWAT team making a huge scene in your? No, neighborhood? no, no.
3: It it wasn't. It wasn't. I was actually in Denver. Uh, you know, even that's kind of bizarre. Where I had gone up to Denver because I had another plumbing job that I needed to go check on up there and then I was seeing some friends downtown and of course the city had just opened up again there was live music and it felt good you know that was probably the first weekend since all of that that I just kind of relaxed and and it felt good and then I got a phone call and they said hey we need you to come in and so I agreed to do that so I turned myself in I think it was on April 6th so they dropped the charges on April 1st which is fitting and then on April 6th was actually when I turned myself in and they took me to a federal immigration facility. But the special agents there at the local FBI field office, I mean, they, they told me that the DOJ had, had told them that they needed to go break my door down. And they said, no, we're not doing it. I mean, they basically said, if you want that to... Do, because again, you've got to understand that I was somewhat widely known in my local community too, you know. It wouldn't have been a good look for those agents there in that community. I guarantee it. So I, you know, again, I commend them for not doing that, but that's what they told me was that the DOJ was the one who really instructed them to make it look as mean as possible. And they just said, no, we're not doing that. These are nonviolent misdemeanors. We've spoken with Sean. He'll just turn himself in. And they were right. So, you know, again, I'm thankful that they didn't do that. You know, that would have just made the whole experience worse. And I know what other people have gone through and it's, it's atrocious. You know they did. You know the way they've the way they've gone after people is just completely unacceptable. And I don't I don't care how anybody wants to look at it. You know if you want to go after somebody who was violent and and appears to be on the run, and you want to you've got to go after them and effect an arrest, I can understand that. But the way they've treated people for nonviolent misdemeanors is just absolutely reprehensible.
1: Yeah, I'm victim of a uh, you know pre-dawn. FBI counterterrorism SWAT team raid. Um, I was working down in Alabama because the job I had at the time required me to travel all over the place. And I was down there and I uh, was at the hotel uh, getting ready to leave for work. And uh, next thing I know, I have a flashbang thrown at my feet and counterterrorism agents jumping out of the back of vans with fully automatic rifles pointed at me in full tactical gear and the whole shebang. Um, they, they shut off the whole area and screaming FBI get down on the ground the whole deal and then they threw me in a cop car and executed a search warrant on my home or my the, the room excuse me took me to the U.S. Marshal's office to bag and
3: tag me every time i hear another one of those stories it's just it's just not acceptable you know and that kind of goes back you know again this is it's like going all the way back to the beginning of this story in a lot of ways
1: yeah they could have just knocked on the hotel door and been like hey um, you're under arrest you gotta come with us i'd have been like right. All right, cool. you know
3: right they gotta but... make it look mean you no, it's more of those optics over the course of the last three years, really, is just optics, 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 you know, where things are presented to the American people in a specific way on television, and that forms their understanding of reality. And 99 percent, yeah, 99 percent yeah, of it is bullshit. Yeah, they call it programming for a
1: reason. Yeah, yeah, they do. After your arrest, and uh, I assume they let you out on bond, uh, did you spend any time in incarcerated?
3: not really it was it was like process me and then i was released on my own recognizance there was some debates over what constituted because there was the condition of release about not speaking to victims or witnesses of january 6th and number one they could never adequately define that so you know when i went to court finally and, it, and then all that stuff was taken care of in the dc system i can't remember the name of the judge they initially assigned me to But he got rid of all that. So I, you know, I spent really two years with very little restriction on what I did. Um, So it was mainly just dealing with, you know, the media and what they said about me and how they, you know, defamed my character. And and really destroyed what was remaining of my plumbing business after struggling through the scam demic. So yeah, I mean that was that was kind of the experience there to where, you know, I lost my plumbing business. And then like Christmas of 2021 was when I finally put my home on the market and sold it, trying to just hold my business together. That was my last ditch effort, and it you know of course that didn't work. And and I ended up moving out to Missouri. With my pretty much my last bit of money from any of that. And uh, I've been living in a camper trailer in my parents' yard ever since. This is the stories that we hear from everybody the way they've just destroyed lives over misdemeanors. Severe injustice in our country, Um, you know, just completely
1: disproportionate uh, to even the charges are disproportionate to what the actions that they're portraying as crimes actually were, and then the sentencing on top of that is just blown way out of proportion. Um, we've even heard instances where the prosecutor you know, recommends six months and the judge will step over that and say, no, we're going to do two years uh, yeah. You know, for certain things and just minor crimes. Um, people sitting in uh, you know, the D.C. Gulag or uh, other prisons across the country um, for the maximum time that the punishment would have been for that misdemeanor and still not have been to trial and so you know max punishment if found guilty was six months but they sat in a jail and pre-trial detention for seven eight months and then after you know they are forced to be released because they've served that maximum time they are let back into society with absolutely nothing given a whole bunch of hoops that they have to jump through you know such as maintaining work and having a a residency when they literally defame them nobody wants to hire them and they have no no roof over their head, nowhere to go. Absolutely no financial stability whatsoever to even try to pick up the pieces. And then they still have to jump through numerous hoops of reporting to a federal pretrial uh, detention officer or, uh, you know, making it back and forth to dc multiple times for court because they refuse to let him do it by zoom which they let others do and then uh have to go through the whole trial process or they get forced into a plea deal of accepting a a guilty plea for one of those crimes or a couple of those those charges and you know then have to pay a bunch of fines on top of that they get slapped with time served but they really just wanted the pain to stop, but they keep punishing them more and more and more, um, even without conviction. So,
3: Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's 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 very much what goes into it. And I've said from the get-go that everybody who gets wrapped up in this, they've got to make their own decisions. You know, I know that I had some major issues with my counsel <laughs> <coughs> and, and the manner in which I later discovered that he was communicating with the Department of Justice. And that's all publicly filed, so people can look at, look at that if they go and find me on Court Listener. I'm not going to belabor that because you know I'm still uh, considering what to do about that. Um, but you know, you get to a point where it's like, what are you even? What are your chances? Number one of acquittal. You know, do we think there'll be appeals one day? And it's like you just you're just sick of it. And so, like people who've gone all the way. You know, like yourself, I mean I, I applaud you, but people who take the plea, I don't I don't look at them as anything other either. Oh, I, I think actually. everybody's just gotta everybody's gotta just figure out what to do in their own situation. Mm-hmm. I mean in my situation I was willing to concede that according to a very strict interpretation of the picketing and parading statute that I that I violated that by saying brother stand with us. Now I I had to do some pretty intense mental gymnastics to come to that point. It's a subjective interpretation. So this is the other problem is that all of this is just subjective interpretation. There's really no objective fact. There's no reason why they should have gone after all these people the way they have. It's, It's absurd and all it's done is make you know, going after the real perpetrators that day—that much more complicated. Even down to the fact that where where does the funding come from? That how does that funding get distributed? You know, they've they're they're putting millions and millions and millions of dollars into this, and and for what? For what? In the end, what does this do? Well, it destroys our country because they put this threat, this fear into everybody. They also other. January Sixers you know it's just it's completely political it's completely intended as part of a much larger operation to destroy this country and we're seeing it play out which goes back to what you and I were talking about with this left boot right boot stuff is that all the people on the left wing who are now applauding this I don't think they're going to find it very much fun when it gets weaponized against them because if it continues it absolutely will. So I'm back to the summer of 2020 when I was telling my friends on the right that we ought to stick up for freedom of speech and now I'm over here trying to tell what remains of my few friends on the left who've stuck with me the same thing and I'm going this is this is how this progresses this is how it gets worse. This is how they turn each other us against each other. You know, this is this is how a civil war starts. This is how Balkanization starts. And this is how authoritarian uh, you know, tyranny then walks into that power vacuum and normalizes the situation exactly as Yuri Bezmenov predicted. No true words
1: have ever been spoken, sir. That's very well put. And I hope it can open the eyes and give some perspective to folks on both sides of the aisle um, of ideology. Because, you know, this is not... About trying to make sure Trump wins or gets back into office, this is a fundamental, fundamental struggle for the uh, survival of our nation as a whole. Whether you're left, right, white, black, brown, yellow, green, um, you know, religious, not religious, compliant with the government or not, one day soon they will be coming after each and every one of us, and. To give up any bit of freedom, whether you agree with it or not, is just subjecting yourself to slavery, and it's being fashioned in a way that people are literally asking for. It.
3: It's uh, 100% correct, and people have got to realize that, and they've got yeah. to realize the way their own emotions can be used against them to turn them into useful idiots to serve an agenda, because this is not a left-right battle at all. I know that Roger Stone and others have framed it in good versus evil. And that really is what it comes down to, but it's also tyranny versus liberty. And, and if we can't hold together as Americans, and and I know that there's people on the right who don't want to hear me when I say this, you know, but it's like, if we can't figure out a way to hold it together around the constitution, then it will fall because the other thing is it's easy to say, oh, well, it's going to be the U S government that does it. Well, I don't know why people are so convinced that the United States government won't collapse as a result of all this. And people say, well, we should do a national divorce, but they're not taking into account the geopolitical situation right now. Our enemies and adversaries around the globe would like nothing more than for us to collapse. They want us out of the picture in a lot of ways. Now, it could be argued that China doesn't want that because they have major problems feeding their people if that happens. But they also look at all their people as being expendable. And they look at all of us as being expendable. And if we get into a situation where there is a national divorce, there is absolutely no way, there's no way that that improves our overall situation as Americans. You know, you have yeah. to look back at the history of the world. When empires collapse, it isn't pretty.
1: You can say that again. And uh, my you know, my suspicion is that China would um, take advantage of that situation and... Um, use us as basically a labor camp to boost themselves and give themselves the resources that they need to become the
3: quote-unquote superpower. And, uh, you know. I think that's a very realistic scenario. I mean, a lot of people aren't aware and, you know, there are Chinese cells in this country right now. Yeah. We are under invasion. We have a compromised executive office, and there's compromise within the Republican Party, within the Democratic Party. We are essentially occupied right now, ideologically 100%. And that's the thing is that so many of these people are, are being used, and it's like they're completely unaware. Are you going to tell me Swalwell is the sharpest tool in the shed, or is he just another useful idiot? You're going to tell me Mitch McConnell is some great genius in the scope of things, or he's just another corrupt politician? We could talk about Kevin McCarthy and his ties to FTX, Sam Bankman-Fried, and that entire money laundering operation in Ukraine. You know, the list goes on and on and on and on. And then when you look at what's going on south of the border in Mexico, that's now spilling over that border and into the United States with the arrest of El Chapo's son and all the war that's going on down there. This is all related. The fentanyl that's pouring into this country, it's all related. We're being you demoralized know, and destroyed. You know, uh, one thing that
1: I, I noticed uh, back when Trump was in office that he secured our border uh, rather effectively and he did it simply by telling the, uh, the, the leader of Mexico that if he did not keep the Uh, migrants on the Mexican side of the border and, you know, stop them using the Mexican military to stop them from invading our country, that he would label the cartels down there as terrorists, which would allow them to use drones and other uh, military means of uh, enforcement
3: in Mexico, you know, in, in the actual, within the borders. <clears throat> well, yeah, and I think that people need to realize that the cartels—they—they know exactly what they're doing as well. They're—they're they're working with the Chinese government. They're working with CCP. Yeah, and there's actually a
1: Chinese military base in Mexico as well, um, right across our border. But
3: this is a bad time said. to talk about what's going on in Canada. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll save that for another episode. <laughs> but um, yeah. you know, they used. Uh, That law of being able to use the the drones and labeling someone as a terrorist within the the, uh, North American sphere uh, stems from the Patriot Act. And I have said it for a long time that the Patriot Act is going to be used against patriots. And that is now what is being used against us because they have labeled us domestic terrorists. And that allows them to completely usurp the Constitution and any rights that we would have as American citizens and they could actually use lethal force against us here in the United States and the National Defense Authorization Act is just icing on the cake with that because it quite literally turned uh, the United States of America into a battlefield when before um, it had a certain sovereignty to it that it could not be encroached upon militarily, uh, especially by our own government and that was taken off the table and now the united states is fair game and so are so are all of its citizens um for military force if labeled
3: by terrorism yep no you you're correct i don't you know i think it's easy for us you know where you know we've had this weaponized against us we see it you know we feel it it's not some abstract concept, but I still think there's too many Americans even now who their lives are too good. So they don't want to see it. You know, they want, to, they want to go to the ball game. They want to have the barbecue. And, and the problem is, is that this lack of vigilance right now is killing us. And we need Americans to really step up and understand what's going on and take action in their own lives and in their communities in whatever capacity they can to improve our overall readiness. I mean, our military is not in particularly good shape either. You know, the vaccine mandates didn't help things. Um, You know, all of the, the woke policies, I mean, the recruitment goal, we didn't even come close. So we're not in a very good position militarily, and in, in the meantime, World War III started three years ago, and yeah. it, you know at least half the country still hasn't figured that out, really. Yes, uh, it's very
1: unfortunate, and uh, the talking heads on TV don't necessarily help because that is just you know Edward Bernays style propaganda being sho- shoved down our throats on a daily basis. Um, when somebody tells me they know what's going on in the world because they pay attention to the news and then they say things like yeah I saw on CNN it just makes my skin crawl or Fox or any of the other uh, mainstream media sources you know people don't understand how to do research on their own anymore for even what ingredients are in the food that they're buying from the supermarket let alone foreign policy and, and any sort of current events what's what's actually happening in our country a majority of society is clueless and the weakening of our military and the weakening of society and education and the destruction of our uh, economy i wholeheartedly believe my opinion that this is all by design you know nobody can come yeah. in here and screw this up so quickly so badly without it being on purpose and the funny i shouldn't say funny the uh sad part about all of it is that this has actually been going on for generations and the people that were screaming from the rooftops back you know times ago that uh they were labeled conspiracy theorists and that is a weaponized term to just immediately dismiss somebody uh for speaking out against the quote unquote status quo narrative
3: no exactly and that was something that i experienced you know in my own life i mean when i was 19 years old and, uh, you know, we were going off to war in Afghanistan and everything, you know, I remember telling my parents and everybody, I was like, Fox News is full of it. You know, this is, this is about moving heroin. That's why we're going over there and people would laugh at me, you know, but again, I read a lot, you know, I know I ran around with blue hair and I looked crazy, but you know, maybe I was reacting to the world around me at a young age. And. And, and nobody would really listen to me, so I let it go for years, but it's just, it, you know, and I guess I am thankful in some ways, but, you know, 20 years later, my parents, they now understand what I was trying to tell them 20 years ago, you know, so there, there's been some awakening in all of this, and I guess that this is, you know, I'll always go back to the Greek meaning of the word of apocalypse, where everything's being revealed. Yeah, the lifting of the veil. Yeah, and that's, and that's, that's Okay. I mean, growth is a painful process. You know, it's easy to get really bogged down and black pilled about all this stuff and be like, Oh, there's nothing any of us can do. But really a lot of it comes down to what we do within our own lives and our own heart and our own soul, because people are going to realize soon enough that this is a spiritual battle. I, I truly believe we're kind of to that point in humanity. And it's only going to accelerate, and this is why it's it's so important for us to hold together. Do I think that the, you know, the end of the world is a is a sure thing? No, I don't. I mean, that's that's an understanding of space time and, and where we are, anyways. I mean, where we're at is influenced by the future as much as it's influenced by the past, and we create both of those things with our actions, all the time and how we conduct ourselves on a multidimensional level. You know, you can call that, you can use whatever terminology you want, you know, and, and sometimes it makes it easier for people if you just say, well, you know, get your heart right with God. And so maybe we just simplify it that way, that if you talk about the very bare minimum but most important thing that any human can do on this planet right now while we watch this rise of global tyranny, it's to get your heart right with God. It's to love those around you. It's to really take some of these spiritual lessons internally. To be peaceful. To speak out. To live freely. To understand that no matter what. I mean, if they if they imprison you, they, they don't do anything. They can't win. They can't win. Over the entire scope of time, they don't win. You know, this kind of evil does not win out. So... You know, we've just got to do our part and uh, try to try to stay chill,
1: <laughs> stay the course, keep it calm, cool, collected, but stand by your convictions and speak up. Right. Yeah. Just like you said before, to be loud, but don't be violent, because the moment we resort to violence or you resort to some of those things, uh, what people might call the lower vibrations sort of emotions then it gives them the opportunity to label us as enemies which immediately in human psychology dehumanizes us and can demoralize any sort of resistance against their oppressive tactics and once they can label us the enemy to the public and uh successfully run with that sort of that sort of campaign and that sort of narrative then immediately they get turned against us and that's exactly what uh the national socialist party did in germany to the to the jewish community
3: uh back in berlin in the 1930s absolutely i mean that's 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 why we've got to be acutely aware of that you're right it's amen it's imperative
1: uh, moving forward, I, I could sit here and pick your brain for hours, and I would love to just sit down and just enjoy a, a nice cold beer and, and chat with you about some uh, some of these topics that we've brought up, because I think that you and I uh, see the world through very similar lenses, and I would love to pick your brain and get your opinion on some things, but um, about January 6th, your arrest and what you were charged with, um, you just recently went through your sentencing, um, tell us how did that how did that play out? Like, what is uh,
3: what is that part of your story? Well, as as I mentioned, um, you know, I've kind of discovered some issues that were uh, present with the attorney that I had and they didn't really present themselves fully until November right before my sentencing hearing, and it was when we were trying to put the sentencing memorandum together, and he was not helpful in that process at all. He was not interested in representing my position, and it really came down to what the government said in their sentencing memorandum that I could not abide by, that I could not let go unchallenged, Um, because it was just flat-out lies. They were leaving information out, you know. It was just, uh, the the government sentencing memorandum is trash, and... And it's, uh, it's an affront to justice and my, uh, I mean, going back and thinking about it, it's just the general language they use about insurrection and, you know, you did this and then you did that. And none of it was true about how, Oh, well, I tried to pretend I was a journalist when again, there's a documented history of it. So, you know, and then, and then my attorney, he's just like, well, you don't want to make the judge mad. You know, and it's like they say, thing, well, you know, the, another thing when they talk about, you know, oh, the, the election was totally cool. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. And there's investigations that continue to go on about that. And we've seen everything that's come out with the Twitter files. There was the Intercept article that talked about the relationship between Department of Homeland Security and Facebook. And so there's all these issues that just came into play. And I couldn't just let it slide just for the sake of just shutting up. You know, this is, this is where you get, where I was willing to say, okay, I pick it in and paraded in the Capitol building, but I'm not going to sit here and just let you call me an insurrectionist without having some sort of a argument about it and putting my, my words on the record. And my attorney was not helping me with that at all. It turned into a kind of a giant mess. Uh, the sentencing date got pushed back twice. At the very last minute, John Pierce um, and NCLU.com, they got involved and they helped me you know come up with a sentencing memorandum that was nowhere near complete. Um, but I felt that you know, given the time and everything else, 49 pages, I think is what it ended up clocking in at. It adequately represented my position. It addressed the lies. And that's what allowed me to make the allocution statements in front of the court That day, which, you know, that was all stuff That I, there was no Rehearsal there um,
1: Now, just for my audience uh, John Pierce, if anybody is familiar With the Kyle Rittenhouse case The Kenosha kid, as he's called uh, John Pierce was his uh, First attorney, and the com is a website for the National Civil Liberties Union Which is a Um uh, Litigation legal organization that uh, John Pierce started. It's kind of like the ACLU, but not uh, not left leaning. It's more uh, you know central towards what the law is that that John Pierce and uh, many other attorneys across this nation truly represent. But go ahead.
3: Yeah, yeah, and I you know I can't again I can't thank him enough. I mean he helped me out obviously. I'm broke, so it's not like I really had any money to put towards that. You know, um, I, I do intend on paying him back for everything that he and his team did, you know, but, but that's how that goes sometimes. Um, you know, my biggest, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Well, you know, my biggest thing was, and again, you know, the old attorney, he was always like, Oh, we want to get your sentencing as low as possible. And I was, I was, that was not a motivator for me. That just was not a motivator for me. Um, and I even said that to judge Hogan during my allocution statement at the sentencing hearing. I, you know, I just said, I don't really, I, I, I leave it in your hands. You know, you're going to say whatever my sentence is. I'm not here to beg you to be lenient. I just need you to understand that for one thing, you know, they've lied about, uh, Roseanne Boyland. And I told him, I said, she was beaten to death by officer Lila Morris. He wanted to kind of argue about that because again, he's so propagandized as well, you know, but then it sets itself up where he's going, Oh, well, this is why you spread misinformation. And, and that's just, it's, it's so sad that we've gotten to the point where you have a senior, senior federal judge who believes absolute bullshit because the news tells him to believe that.
1: Yeah, there's tons of video evidence and firsthand accounts of uh, the beating death of Roseanne Boylan. Um, Gary McBride of M5 News, who you mentioned previously, a good friend of mine, has pointed out in the video where Officer Lila Morris actually broke the nightstick over Roseanne Boylan's head while she laid unconscious on the ground. And a majority, not a majority, but a lot of the gentlemen sitting in jail across the country uh, that were in the tunnel with Roseanne Boylan are facing charges of assault. On a police officer for simply trying to stop her from beating the, uh, Roseanne to death. And, you know, people can try to spout what the news says, but the facts don't line up. And even her own family will tell you uh, that she did not die of a drug overdose like the news tries to propagate and um, that she was beaten um, at the Capitol that day. And hopefully one day, Uh, we will be able to bring to light the truth of her tragic, tragic murder. Amen. Amen. So what were you finally uh, sentenced with? Like, what is um, the outcome of
3: your sentencing hearing? So in the end, you know, they they always try to make it seem very judicious. And that's fine. I mean, whatever. Um, They sentenced me to two years of probation. And seven days in which they call it intermittent confinement, but that's its own issue because the US Marshals and nobody really knows how to apply the sentence because they don't deal with sentences that short. <laughs> so they gave me seven days uh, that I have to serve at some point, somewhere, somehow, some way, and 60 <laughs> hours of community service. So, you know, by all intents and purposes, people would say that it's a lenient sentencing, but. You know, to me, it's like it's it's neither here nor there. If that makes any sense, like it wouldn't have mattered one way or the other. My life has been, you know, completely destroyed, and so everything from now forward is me trying to rebuild and get back on my feet. So that's it is what it is. I don't see the sentencing at all being helpful to that end, even though it's funny where it talks about in the sentencing guidelines that it should. You know, help to rehabilitate the offender and yada yada yada. When literally this is now crippling my efforts to get back on my feet. So, it is what it is. I'll do what I have to do and uh, keep speaking for as long as I'm able. God bless you in that regard.
1: Um, just out of curiosity for clarity, and uh, I'm, I'm man enough to under understand that I actually don't know what this means. In intermittent incarceration, does that mean that you can pick and choose when you decide to go sleep over at the U.S. Marshals uh, detainment facility? or?
3: So it has to do with this thing because Judge Hogan had initially ruled that he didn't think split sentences were legal in Class B misdemeanors. Okay, so... So in other words, the simple interpretation of his previous rulings was that he would not do probation and incarceration. It was either probation or incarceration. But obviously he's had second thoughts about how he feels about that, and none of the other judges have interpreted statutes that way. And so he has basically found a workaround for his own previous ruling where he says that it's intermittent confinement, meaning that he can sentence you, but you're allowed to leave the jail. Then you go back to the jail. then. You... But in my case, it's seven days straight. It's intermittent. They called it an intermittent confinement sentence to be served consecutively. <laughs> so, yeah. So while we're all doing mental gymnastics, I would like to congratulate those that came up with that. But, uh, yeah. So that's, that's where that's at. Um, and I, you know, from my perspective, I just want to go get it done, you know, and, and my intention is to comply with all the conditions of probation and get all of my fines paid. And I want to be off probation in one year, which is what they've told me I can do. Um, did they mention
1: what the how much the fines were or is that uh, did yeah they did yeah people? they did
3: well obviously you know I, I income hasn't exactly been uh, been amazing I mean I, I crowdfund everything I do and that has basically paid for my cell phone bill and my truck payment. That's what I'm down to as far as bills go and then you know probably three or four hundred thousand dollars worth of debt that I just continue to wonder how i'll ever deal with it. um well, that's just change buddy you can find that in. <laughs> in- but well, i'll go over to ukraine and find some of that um yeah, it. probably find some ballots for biden too <laughs> right
1: right it's amazing what you find i cannot uh commend you enough for the efforts that you have put forth um not only in your case but in helping to you know bring truth forward in uh the j6 situation itself as a whole for everybody that's involved um i have uh heard about your efforts down at the uh the dc gulag at the um the vigil that they have out there every night and have been since august 1st of 2022 and uh you know i've have heard nothing but good things about you from uh from those that are involved down there such as uh randy ireland mickey whithop and mel holly nicole refit and uh in uh, the quote-unquote gang that hangs out outside the jail yeah. every night now- your story is extremely informative and just thought-provoking i hope My listeners can go back and listen to this again to try to absorb as much of what you said as possible because it takes a lot to try to unpack and i understand that i've been involved in this uh, for quite some time and i understand a lot of the stories and the names that you're you're bringing up and the situations of which uh have played out in their stories as well how is it that anybody that would like to help you rebuild or to uh, you know help you out in ways that uh, financially that they can put their money where their mouth is and show some American love to you.
3: Well I think you know in the in the near term, um, I've got to figure out some sort of gainful employment um, that shows a w2. Uh, that's kind of a requirement of my probation which is very difficult for me. I haven't worked for anybody in a hourly position for over 10 years Um, so I'm still trying to wrap my mind around how that works Um, but people can people can obviously contribute I mean you talked about Randy Ireland and Americans for Justice I've worked with him closely for the last year on various things some quietly some not so anything they can do to help Randy um, helps J6ers in general and has also helped me you know the other way is is obviously I have a give send go that that goes directly to me you know the typical things cash app Sean Witzman um, Twitter pay there's a, there's a button on Twitter for people who are kind of realizing that you can actually say things over there for the most part that's been huge for kind of pushing the message out I'm going to be trying to do a sub stack here soon that I'll be doing subscriptions so that I can be doing some writing and getting a lot of, a lot more detailed, um, versions of what we've just discussed that I think will help me kind of form the foundations of a book at some point. If I can just kind of start writing articles about the last four or five years of my life. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's really the way, I mean, every, every dollar, like I say, it helps.
1: Um, and I'm just
3: going to keep trying to push forward and, uh, and keep going you hear the call to action folks um every little bit goes a long way
1: uh reach out and show sean what american exceptionalism truly is all about um he doesn't sound like the uh the terrorist type if you ask me and they have destroyed his life turning it completely upside down Uh, from a story of success to a, a story of just absolute destruction um your give send go is uh your witzman family fund is that correct yes sir yes sir okay and uh for anybody that is trying to find it on give send go you can also go to my website of sing the number four freedom.us and under the help j6ers tab find sean and uh help out in any little way that you can because it will it will definitely help to rebuild and repair some of the uh, injustices that our country has unfortunately forced you to endure is there anything else that you would like to to share with our our audience anything else you want america to know uh, before we go ahead and wrap this up
3: i think just the general encouragement for people to stay peaceful and to keep speaking out
1: that's it be bold and speak truth. That's a thing I hear A for J, uh, Americans for Justice say quite often. And, uh, you know, peace and unity will win this over. We cannot resort to the violence that they want. We need to hit them with some love and unity and debate and beat down their emotional rhetoric with just cold, hard facts and show that the truth is there because you know truth is like a lion you don't need to defend it you just let it loose and it will defend itself i cannot thank you enough sir for your time and again for everything that you have been doing um love to have you back uh, again sometime you can give us an update so if you do put a book together please uh, reach out and let me know
3: absolutely well thank you for having me
1: on i really appreciate it the the pleasure is all mine sir it's uh it's truly an honor to, to finally get to meet you. And um, I look forward to a uh, future conversation. Hey, don't forget folks to check out the description box for the links and references that you would need. Also, you can find the links to all of our sponsors down there to help keep the Sing for Freedom dream alive. Keep this podcast running and, uh, help me in my fight for true justice for our January 6th inmates, defendants, and their families. And also help me in my own case. You know, I'm facing 30 years and I can't do it alone, even though I didn't go in the building, which still blows my mind. But that's the America that we're dealt with right now. Mammothnation.com. MakeHoneyGreatAgain.com. And p2pprinting.com are our sponsors. Mammoth Nation uh, goes up against Amazon and makes sure to support patriotic veteran-owned businesses. Use the promo code of FREEDOMJ6. That's FREEDOM, the letter J, the number six, for a 30% discount. MakeHoneyGreatAgain.com. Use the promo code FREEDOM. And that's how they know that I'm the one that sent you, and it helps us keep things going. And then P2P Printing, look under the On tab, P-I-A-N-O-N, Pi on, because that's the name I go by online, and you can get all the Sing for Freedom gear, merchandise that your heart can desire, help make patriotism sexy again. I also want to remind everybody that in the description box, you can find a link to drop us a voice message. You want to do your national anthem for sing for freedom by audio only, send us a voice message. If you want to send a message to the J Sixers? You can do it that way as well. And also don't forget to check out our website of singthenumber4freedom.us. singforfreedom.us. It's not a .com because I'm not a company, it's not .org because well, I'm not very organized, but I am an American. So singforfreedom.us, it's the central hub of ways that you can get involved, help out our January 6th defendants with their give, send, goes. I have a very extensive list on the site and it goes directly to them. We don't touch a penny. Uh, my give, send, go is on there as well. So if you feel so inclined to help me out in this fight to pay for a very expensive lawyer, um, you just find my name, Joseph Thomas, in the list. And uh, it's all deeply appreciated because All of us have limited resources. The federal government, which is destroying our lives, have unlimited resources because as good citizens, we pay our taxes. So check out the website, singforfreedom.us. There's ways that you can get involved in all the different groups. Plus, you can see the videos the Patriots submit for Sing for Freedom of them singing the anthem. I hope by now you're starting to realize that not everything is what we've seen. Not everything is as we are being shown, especially by the talking heads on TV. Just because you read an article by some news outlet online does not mean that it's credible. Somebody pays them. Somebody pushes an agenda, a narrative. We're censored on social media. They're censored for a living. They are told what to write, how to write it, what they want their audience to think. They tell you how to think about a certain subject. There's this thing called the Hegelian dialectic. Problem, reaction, solution. There's a problem, they tell you how to react, and they stand there with a solution that nine times out of 10 involves you losing your rights and them gaining power or money or some sort of benefit. And a majority of the time, they're also the ones that cause the problem to begin with, or at least those that are in charge of the people telling you how to react and those that have the solution. So just take a moment to realize that it is up to you to have discernment and do your own research, to look into the facts without somebody telling you. And that means me too. Don't believe a word I say. Just believe what you find. Look into what we say. Look into the claims. Look into the claims that anybody makes. Question everything so you can think freely. Think for yourself. Truly be American. That's what it's all about. It's freedom. Freedom is what makes America great. So I thank you all for listening and I hope that you enjoy these interesting stories by the men and women that are involved in the January 6th community, whether they are defendants, family members, activists, or people out here doing works of charity, kindness, and love. Go to my website, check it out, and help the J6ers with their give, send, goes. It goes directly to them. There's no middleman trying to make a profit. That's something you definitely need to be aware of because there are a lot of groups that say they are here to help and they want you to donate to them so that they can send their money to the J6ers. But in all actuality, the money doesn't get to them. It might go to a select few and their little friend click, but it's not actually helping anybody in need. That's why we have it set up at singforfreedom.us to go directly to the families because I'm definitely not here to make a profit. I'm actually losing money constantly, which is fine because I'm sending it out to help those in need, or I'm using it to push information on platforms like this to get it out to you because this is my passion. This is how I can help bring awareness This is what little piece of the puzzle that I can place in to help with the bigger picture. So enjoy. Thank you all. And I'll see you next time. But remember, we're Americans, and it's going to stay that way. Oh, say can you
2: see by the dawn Hey!